Good morning. Good morning. If you're new, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and I have the joy most Sundays of opening up God's Word. And uh, before we do, um, how many of you are Cam Newton Panthers fans? <laughs> ha! Wow. Pray for you, Danine. How many of you are Broncos fans? How many of you could care less? These are so funny. Yeah, go Bears. <laughs> Good luck on that. You should be as excited about church as about the Super Bowl. <laughs> so when your pastor makes a point this Sunday, pour Gatorade over his head. Now, this was, my name was tagged on this quite a bit on Facebook, so so help me God, if you do this, I will pray against you, and you know that God hears pastor's prayers before yours. So just saying. <laughs> that was a lie. He does not, objectively. It's not true. We're all one in Christ. All right, good. All right, so welcome, and if you are new, this is a really actually um, ironic week for this to be your first time at Village Church, um, because I have the absolute joy of preaching one of the most difficult subjects to preach in a church. Yay, right? So by the end of this, half of you are going to be like, oh, he's terrible, we're never coming back here, and the other half of you are going to be like, I agree, and then there's going to be another half of you, because there's 150% of you, who are going to be like, what? My goal, my goal today is to have everybody kind of be on the same page in a spirit of love and joy and unity that gives Jesus much glory. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Good. So um, now before we get into this specific doctrine, I'll give you a little context here. There are some things that, you know, we pastors have to get up and, t and teach on um, that the church by and large is on the same page. But it's really hard because maybe the culture or the world doesn't agree with us, right? So you could talk about issues like gay marriage, abortion, hell, the list goes on and on and on, right? So I could preach, and very plausibly, the majority of you might be on the same page with me. This is one of those subjects that in the church, a whole bunch of people disagree. So yay. So I'm going to start some fights this morning. Um, we're going to see how many stitches come back next Sunday um, after your community groups meet. Now, before I tell you what the doctrine is, I want to tell you just a story to tell you how I was personally introduced to this doctrine. Um, I was 19 years old. I was a freshman at Michigan State, and my mom called me up, and she said, you are not going to believe what, the, uh, what our pastors taught at our Bible study. She proceeded to tell me what they taught, and my response was, mom, there's no way that's true. So we opened up the Bible together, and I looked at it and said what she said it said and what they said it said. And I said, Mom, there's got to be some misunderstanding about this because there's no humanly possible way that this is true. And so I proceeded to hang up the phone, and I went to our pastor. Little did I know that the pastor of the church I was attending at Michigan State believed the same thing that my church believed back at home. And I was angry. I'm just going to be totally candid. I was mad they believed it. I was mad that the Bible even alluded to it. I was frustrated, and I went on a two-year journey, um, intense journey, to figure out what does the Bible say on this issue, because that's what I wanted to know. But when I faced the Bible, when I came toe-to-toe -to -toe with it, I looked at it, it aggravated me how clear it was, aggravated me, because there was something inside of me that did not want what it said to be true. So we're going to talk about this subject. And here's what I want to do with you. I want to invite you to struggle. Now, I have an opinion. And of course, my opinion is the right opinion. And if you disagree with me, then you're wrong. And that's cool. I totally embrace you to be, it's fine to be wrong. I'm kidding. Not really, but I am kind of kidding. So um, he said in jest. Um, 
But, but truly, what, what I want to do with you is I want to invite you, if this is a new subject matter for you, into the journey to wrestle through the word of God and to, I want you to get to a place where you can agree with what God says clearly. Some of you, you already disagree with me on this. You don't even know what I'm gonna say. You just disagree, right? <laughs> no, but some of you, when we bring up the subject, you're gonna say, um, I have a different opinion than you, Michael, and there's nothing that you can say that can change my mind, and that's fine. I want to just encourage you, um, listen with an open Bible. I want you to have an open mind, but I'd prefer you to have an open Bible. Listen and let the word of God inform and transform whatever you or I think is true. And I want to be under that same authority as well. Some of you are going to hear this and you're going to be like, yeah, amen, you're awesome, right? I want to just tell you something. Don't forget how hard it was for you to come to grips with this truth, okay? Be gentle, sensitive, and allow people to go on a multi-year journey sometimes to get to the place where they have wrestled through a lot or all of the questions, if that's even possible. So you guys want to know what the actual issue is? Some of you know, some of you don't. You're like, what is this guy talking about? Get to the point. All right, there's a couple words in Scripture that are used, or outside of Scripture, that are used to describe what this is, okay? Um, it's the, one of them is the word election. You'll hear this word come up regularly in the Bible. Um, another one is predestination. You're going to hear this word twice in the passage today. And then finally, there's a theological term, and it is Calvinism, which you're like, Calvin what? Um, you may hear this come up. It's actually going to be in a lot of your secular history books. It comes up in there because it was a very influential doctrine in Europe in the late um, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, etc. And Calvinism is named after uh, a French pastor in the 1500s named John Calvin. Um, John Calvin didn't come up with this doctrine, but he was one of the first pastors to organize it in a way that the masses could really comprehend and understand it, okay? So he started like a movement called Calvinism. But um, by and large, though, all, his teachings weren't new, okay? They go back, 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 back. And as far back as we can go to the time of Jesus, God's people have disagreed about this issue. Some of you are like, okay, I see the words, but I still don't know what the heck you're talking about, Okay? So I'm going to try to as simply tell you what the issue is, and then we're going to take some time this morning, and we're going to unravel it. So the question is very simple. Ready? Did I choose God, or did God choose me? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? If you've trusted in Jesus, you probably feel like you made a decision to trust in Jesus, and here's the question when we start reading the Bible, because the Bible starts to talk as if you actually didn't choose him first. And so we got to like wrestle through this, right? Because you're going to see as this unravels that there are huge implications, right? And here's what you're going to find. You're going to start to feel very, very deeply about what I'm talking about, whether you agree with me or not. Because this subject has brought up much, much emotion inside of Christians, which brings me to one of four introductory points before we can even open up the text that I have to make with you, and I hope this is instructive for you, but um, four things you need to know about predestina predestination. Number one, Christians disagree passionately about this issue, passionately, and I want you to hear me. That is okay. Please don't be a jerk about it. Can I get an Amen. Don't be a jerk. Some of you, you're like, you're ready to pounce. Like, you're ready to fight. You're going to go to your community group and your gun's blazing. Chill out, okay? Relax. But it is okay that Christians disagree about this. Um, I have gotten into, in my younger years, many a fight over this issue. <laughs> 
I have said many an inappropriate thing to a brother or sister in Christ. I have brought this doctrine up in inappropriate places where I should never have brought it up, right? And I've had to repent a lot of that. That was a good 10, 15 years ago. So um, you will be tempted at times to have so much emotion over this that it could even lead you to sin. And you'll understand why I say when we get into this. Um, at the Village Church, we talk about our doctrine in tears. And I want you to understand this because I think this will help you frame what we're gonna talk about this morning. Uh, tier one doctrine is what we would call absolutely essential if you're gonna be a Christian, okay? You got to believe these things. You wanna go to heaven? Believe these things. Here are some of them. You need to believe that the Bible is God's word, right? That's like a non-negotiable. It's an essential here. If you're gonna like, if you're gonna just kind of like exist here for too long, you just gotta have a high view of the Bible. It's God's word. It's true. It's authoritative. We all submit to it, whether or not we like it. Number two, Jesus is fully man and fully God, okay? You just gotta believe that. That's a non-negotiable, okay? Um, you are a sinner. <laughs> gotta believe it. Some of you think you're amazing. You're a sinner. Ask your husband, your wife, your friends, your mom, or your dad, or anybody who knows you, okay? You're a sinner. You need to be saved from your sin because there's no good work that you can do to save yourself before God. Jesus, fully God, fully man, died on the cross for your sins in your place, and he was raised by the Father on the third day as a declaration that his payment was, ac was accepted and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Gotta believe that. Non-negotiable, okay? Tier one, we on the same page? Yeah. Tier two, important but not essential for salvation, okay? Really, really, really important. But you can disagree with each other, you can arm wrestle, you can call each other names. At the end of the day, if you believe in Jesus, you're still both going to heaven, okay? Whether or not you believe you chose Jesus first or he chose you first or when this started and how it happened, I just wanna give you this huge encouragement. Wrestle, but your salvation is not on the line if you struggle with this or if you disagree with me. You're just wrong. So, good. Um, you hear the jokes, I'm trying to lighten you up, relax a little bit, soften the, the spiritual palate of your souls. Okay, good. Um, Anyways, so tier two is important, but not essential. This is tier two. It is very, very, very important. But I wanna give you permission to struggle. I wanna give you permission to resist. I wanna give you permission to ask really hard questions. We are not gonna be able to get to every single issue that comes up around this question. And uh, we're gonna open up the Q&A podcast specifically for a week or two to answer any and all of your questions on this subject. I mean, you make them as hard as you possibly can. Try to stump us. That is our goal. We're not afraid of them. And we wanna actually help you process through all this. So number one, Christians disagree. Um, number two, if you let it, this subject could change your life if you will study it. Because to study this subject is to study the nature, character, and purposes of God. And for me, I struggled, like most people, to read the Bible regularly. This subject was the catalyst that prompted me to devour God's word for two years this was one of the most life-changing subjects for me. And the reason I was motivated is because of how much emotion was around the actual subject matter. But if you would actually study this, this could absolutely revolutionize and change your life, which brings me to point number three. When you hear what we teach this morning, culture is on trial, not the Bible. Think like it, okay? Get that. 
So <clears throat> there's something inside of you as an American because you're like, I'm awesome, I'm an American, we conquered the whole world, we're the strongest people ever, we're the smartest, we're the pinnacle of all creation and all of culture, right? Lies. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble, okay? So something inside of you, when the Bible says something that grinds your American sentimentalism or culture or values, something inside of you says, well, what's wrong with the Bible? Can we just invert this and say, maybe something's wrong with American culture and the Bible is just fine. Because let's be honest, culture changes minute to minute, day by day, decade by decade. Two years ago, American culture looked very different than it does today on a number of key major issues. Culture shifts. The word of God is stable. And so what I wanna encourage you to do is take the Bible off the stand and put your culture on trial and ask yourself, the culture, where does it disagree with God's word? And then where am I influenced by American Western culture to the point where it blinds me from accurately, accurately reading what God says and believing it. So here, I'm just gonna tell you what's gonna happen. If you've never studied this, you are gonna be upset and offended at first, and then you're gonna have to go through a wrestling match with God. Why am I upset? Why am I offended? Why, when it seems to say something, does it bother me so deeply? And here's what I want to tell you. This happens to me all the time. It still happens regularly. I'll read something and I'm like, Ugh, I don't like that. And every time I start by putting God and the Bible on trial and I have to stop and say, no, I'm on trial. I'm on trial. My culture is on trial. My lens through which I read the Bible is on trial. The Bible is true and good and right no matter what. And we should expect that the Bible is going to grind our American conscience. Why? Because almost every single major issue that the Bible has clear teaching on, our culture takes issue with. Women, gender, sexuality, marriage, the list goes on and on. Heaven, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. You just go on and on and on. Every major doctrine, our culture says, ugh, I don't like that. And so you need to recognize that when you come to the word of God, the word of God intends to systematically dismantle your culture and reform and reshape your mind in the image of Jesus Christ. It is a gut-wrenching and it is a hard process. I get when I preach, one of the things I'm doing is I'm asking you to die to everything you ever knew that you grew up with and reform your mind into the image of Christ through the word of God. I get that that's gut-wrenching and how I know that it's because I have personally had to do it and I have not stopped doing that. It is hard objectively. I've learned about myself and most people I know that when you come to Jesus, and I want you to hear me, this may not sit well with you, but when you come to Jesus, when I came to Jesus, almost everything I knew about God was wrong. If you would have said to me, describe God, I would have given you a whole bunch of descriptions of God, but then I, over time, as I took these understandings of who God is, he systematically dismantled them and then reassembled them so that God became more amazing, more glorious, more beautiful, more awesome than anything I could have possibly imagined. And I became more sinful and more wretched than I ever understood and simultaneously more loved by God than I ever even comprehended. So that almost everything that I understood that God had to like dismantle, you know what I understood when I came to Christ? Jesus died for my sins and he rose again and I love him. That's it. But even what I understood of Jesus, he had to be like, yeah, like I see that you think I'm like this. I'm cooler. I'm way better, right? And at every moment, Father, Son, and Spirit, I've had to have reformed and reshaped and God is not done doing that in my heart yet and I know he's not do done doing that in yours. Number four, we're gonna talk about what happened when you got saved, okay? How did this happen? How did this happen? That's not grammatically correct. How did this happen? Um, and the Bible speaks about the experience of salvation from two perspectives, and you have to know which perspective you're reading in any given text. If you confuse them, you will not be able to think clearly about this subject. 
We say all the time that good theology is nuanced, okay? It is not as simple as a cute, trite one-liner that you throw out and you're like, ah, it's easy, right? It's nuanced. And so this is a nuance that I need you to understand because I'm gonna refer back to this in this message. So the Bible speaks about your salvation, the moment of you trusting in Christ in one of two ways, okay? The first way is it describes the experience of it. So in the book of Acts, somebody's preaching the gospel. Somebody hears the gospel and they believed. And if you went to that person in that moment and said, did you choose God? What would they say? Well, yes, I just chose God because I just made the decision to choose God, right? And the Bible will describe in usually a narrative form the experience of what happens in the moment when someone trusts in Christ. But there's something that's happening behind the experience. And the question in the experience is, why did that happen? And then some texts, like the one we're going to look at today, pull back the curtain and they allow you to look behind the scenes and say, what was actually happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm when this person trusted in Jesus Christ? And so I want to look at you and say, in good conscience, somebody can say, yes, I just chose Jesus. But now what I want to do with you this morning is pull back the curtain and I want to look behind the scenes and I want to share with you what God says about what was actually going on behind the scenes. So you need to know, sometimes the Bible talks about salvation behind the scenes and sometimes it talks about salvation and the actual experience of it. So today we're going to talk about the experience or behind the scenes. Say behind the scenes. Good, we're all on the same page. All right, go to point number one in your notes. We're going to be starting in Ephesians 1.3 as a, as a setup here. And here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we're gonna pause there for a moment, okay? Um, Big picture on choosing, election, predestination, Calvinism, whatever, whatever. Here's what Paul wants you to do when you get done hearing what he's about to say. He wants you to worship God. He wants you to bless God. He wants you to step back and say, wow, but with a lot more emotion, Okay? And so the height of your wow is contingent on the depth of your understanding of this issue. You catch that? So the greater your praise and worship for God and your salvation, the greater it goes is contingent on the depth of your understanding of this issue of predestination, election, choosing, Calvinism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And you might say, well, Michael, that's ridiculous. So it doesn't matter. Here's what happens. Like, He starts off in verse four and he is gonna talk about your salvation and the blessings you have in Jesus Christ. And do you know what the first blessing that he communicates, the first major doctrine communicated in this book? It's this, even as he chose us in him. Like you would think, if someone were to say, what's the greatest blessing about being saved? You'd be like forgiveness, peace, heaven, et cetera. That's not where he starts. He actually goes way, way, way bigger and different than that. He starts back and says, here's here's the first blessing. And and when you hear this, I want you to stop and I want you to say, wow, and I want you to give God praise and glory. You were chosen in him. Okay, so some of you are like, all right, Michael, where are you going? I need to make a point. I need you to listen to my point. And I'm gonna warn you that for some of you, this is gonna be probably the hardest part of the sermon. I didn't expect this, but in the last sermon, about 10 people started crying when we went through this. But you cannot get what we're about to say until you get this. God is a choosing God. You're like, that's not a big deal. We just read it. Let me go, let me go deeper. Why does person X get healed and person Y doesn't? 
Is God in control of that? Answer. Why does, why does one son die and another son lives? Why is one baby aborted and another lives? Why does one tsunami devastate a land and kill 100,000 people, yet another one misses just by fractions of an inch? Why is it that when one person has cancer, God enters in and says, I will heal you and bring you into remission and I will let you live a long, fruitful, healthy life, and yet some people, they're three and four years old and they get cancer and they die? So like some of you, right, you want to like try to make, like exonerate God. Oh, God didn't have anything to do with this. I, you need to get this. God allows, ordains, or permits all things all the time. Could God stop it? Answer, yes. And if God doesn't stop it, why does he not stop it? Well, that, I don't know, <laughs> okay? I'm not gonna go there right now. But here's what I know. God ordains, allows, or permits all things. There is not one atrocity that happens in your personal life or in this world that God could not have stopped because God is a choosing God. I'm not asking for that to be easy, but if you let your mind go there, it is, a it is a necessary conclusion, and the Bible needs you to understand this. And if you're gonna read anything else that we, 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 we teach here, you gotta get comfortable with that level, then we can actually start talking about, okay, specifically what does he choose and what does he not choose? But if you're gonna say that God couldn't have stopped it, then God stops, to be, stops being sovereign. But we know the Bible over and over and over again is very clear. God is in control of all things. There's not one thing that happens that he does not allow or deign or permit. And if that is the case, then already God is violating our American sensibilities and he's not playing by our rules. And this is what the Bible does. It takes our cute, nice, neat little boxes that we put God into, blows them out of our categories, and it forces us to say, you are bigger, more extravagant, more beautiful, more compelling, more infinite, more difficult, more complex, more intelligent than anything I ever could have comprehended. And there's this line that we say all the time, and, and for me, I just, I want you to get this. We say, if you knew what God knew, you would do what God does every time. If you knew what God knew, you would do what God does every time. But here's the reality. We are one finite brain that can barely even comprehend the present, let alone all events and all of human history, past, present, future, from every person's perspective. God processes them all perfectly and is fully attentive and aware of every single one of them. And yet we somehow step back and we say, God, you're on trial. And he's like, you're so little. <laughs> You're so little. I, and, and I love that God does sympathize. He does empathize. He sees the struggles from our perspective. But simultaneously, he's also infinitely bigger than anything we can possibly imagine. To choose means to make a free choice from among a full range of options for your own reasons. I mean, that might be a complicated way of saying it, but like basically, like God wasn't constrained. When he makes choices, right, he has the ability to choose what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, for his own reasons. And every one of you here, you're here because God, at the end of the day, allowed, ordained, or permitted you to be in this room right now. So now we're there. We're at the, we're at the 10,000 foot level. Let's, let's break it down. Let's get a little bit clear. Okay, but, but Michael, what does Paul mean by being chosen? So let's zero in. I wanna to read to you a passage of scripture here. Um, and, and I think this is one of those scriptures that like, uh, like we could actually just stop here and go home and you'd have enough to chew on, but Acts 17, 26. Paul's preaching the gospel to non-Christians, and here's what he says. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in the face of the earth. Listen to this. 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's looking at these non-Christians, and here's what he says, basically. Every one of you are appointed a number of days in your life. Who chose those days? God. He's a chooser. He's a picker. Every human being has no more or no less than the days allotted to him by God. Period. That's it. I don't know how that coincides with the way people die, but here's what I know. Nobody gets one more day than God ordained. Ever. So God looks at a bunch of non-Christians and said, God chose before you were even born, the number of days that you were permitted to live were ordained for you. And then he says, even your, your, your boundary places, your living places, whether it is an empire or whether it is your home in the, the um, area of your property, how many acres you live on, all of that was determined by God. And so you walk in and you're like, I chose this house and I chose this property, I chose this condo, I chose this apartment. And yet God's like, did you? Because apparently before you made the choice, something behind the curtain, behind the scenes was going on where you were not allowed to do no less or no more than God allowed, ordained, or permitted for you. And yet at the same time, you're not some robotic automaton who walked in and said, I am doing exactly the will of God. I have no choice, right? So like Paul wants us to get big and then he's gonna get small. God's in control of everything. He chooses everything in one degree, but look, he needs to bring us down to earth here. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. What? Okay. So he chose you. Um, when you were four years old, he saw that you had so much capacity. You were going to do great good. When God, when I was five, God's like, that kid's a preacher. Like that kid's going to like preach one day. I got to save that kid before like the devil uses him. Is that what happened, by the way? Negative, 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 negative. Okay. And all of you who know me, you're like, yeah, no, not quite, Michael. <laughs> um, so Paul, here's what he wants us to get, right? You're going to be tempted to say God chose you because he knew you would choose him, which, by the way, is total nonsense. If you just think about the logic of that, he knew I was going to choose him, so he chose me first. Like, I got you first. Like, actually violates the entire premise of choosing, but that's fine. So before the foundation of the world, and here's, here's what Paul wants us to get. Before you are born, before you had done anything good or bad, before matter existed, you were in the mind of God. And that God, before he did anything, plucked you out of all, of all of the people that would ever live in all times, and he said, I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna put all of my love and my affection and passion into you. I'm gonna give you my first, I'm gonna give you my best. I'm gonna enter into your life at the right moment, at the right time, and he plucks you out. Now, some of you, you're thinking, why me and not others? We'll get there. But Paul doesn't even go there in this. He's just focusing on you. He wants you to be mesmerized and to be able to say, wow, that before time even began, he plucked you. And he put his love and his affection and his promise on you. And one day in your life, somebody came to you and told you about Jesus and you believed and you chose him. But you unravel the curtain and you see that this moment of you choosing began before eternity began. I love this. I'm thinking to myself, like, I, I can't even process yesterday, like, other, let alone eternity past. And yet in God's mind, I was his son. You were his sons and daughters before you were even born. For me, I just step back and I'm like, oh, like, you must really like me and I don't know why. 
before the foundation of the world. So you get done with this verse, and you're like, okay, Michael, that's all that he has to say on this. But Paul's relentless. So listen to what happens. He goes on, and uh, he says, even as he chose us in him, he predestined us. He goes on. I'm like, wow, now you're talking about predestination. And then verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Like Paul's relentless. He's like, okay, you don't like the chosen word, so let me just define predestination for you, like determining one's destiny beforehand. Like, could I be more clear? It's almost like what Paul's trying to say. But then when you start reading Paul's letters, this language is in every book. Like once you're made aware of this language, it's hard to even read a chapter in the Bible where the implications or this language is not just creeping up everywhere. It's almost scary, which is why for me it became so invigorating when I started reading it because I was like, oh my goodness, this is everywhere. I gotta like, I gotta get this. What am I missing? How did I miss this all the time? And so I look at this and I'm like, wow, God, like you just, you talk about this all the time. You're not gonna let us get away from it. Now, where did Paul get this crazy idea from? Do you guys know where? Jesus. Paul didn't make this up. He got it from Jesus. And you got to understand one thing about Jesus, and this might be new information for some of you. So um, you know how you're conditioned to say, boo, Pharisees, right? Okay. Bad guys, Sadducees, bad guys. Did you know that Jesus, theologically, doctrinally, he was a Pharisee? He aligned with the Pharisees' teaching. He would tell his disciples, um, listen to what they teach, but don't do what they do, because they're hypocrites and liars, right? But what they teach is actually pretty right on. Now, the, oppo the opposing view of the Pharisees, it was the Sadducees. And you'll find out in a moment, they were sad, you see. <laughs> Love that. I never get bored of that, ever. It just continually makes me laugh. But, so the Pharisees, right, in Jesus' day and before, had a huge high view of the sovereignty of God. Like God is in control of all things at all times. Nothing is out of God's control. Um, they had zero emotional issues with this doctrine of election or predestination or choosing. And do you know why they had no issues? Because they grew up believing it. Go all the way back, right? What nation did God choose? Israel. And by default, what nation did God ignore? all the rest, every tribe, tongue, and nation. At that time, God basically didn't do anything with. He set all of his affection and love on the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel are very comfortable with the fact that God chooses and that with every choice, there is an unchoice. This isn't a struggle for them. And so the, the, the Israelites, and particularly the Pharisees, they love the sovereignty of God. They love that God was in control of everything, almost to the point where some of them um, chartered into what, what philosophers call determinism, which is that um, we are all robots playing out the video game of God's mind or the movie of God's mind, which is not true either. The Bible holds us back from that tension. Um, but they had this huge high view of God. They believed in things like the angelic and spiritual realm and heaven and in hell. They believed in, um, uh, we'll just say, uh, uh, the resurrection, right? So you get to the, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the spiritual realm in the same way. They didn't believe in a heaven or hell. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Honestly, their, their religion was more of like a cultural religion than it was a passion. I mean, they knew the law, but the law was actually their law of the land. So they knew it, but they didn't believe it in the same way that the Pharisees did. And so here's what I want you to understand, that the Sadducees were obsessed with free will. No, I determine my destiny. No, I determine where I'm going. No, I am the one who determines my eternity or my present or whatever. And the Pharisees would be like, no, you don't. God chooses. And, and the Sadducees would be like, no, I choose. And so even in this day, there was a struggle. But what do you think Jesus was? Well, let's actually listen to the very things Jesus says, because Jesus is sort of overwhelmingly clear on this so many times that it almost makes the readers of the Gospels uncomfortable if you're listening for it. And so I want to start with this, John chapter 6, 
And this is probably one of the most unclear at the same time clear. Here's what he says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay. Will everybody that the Father gives to Jesus come to him? The answer is yes. Who is doing the choosing in this? The Father. So the Father is picking, he's choosing, he's got some, and everybody he picks or chooses, they will come to Jesus. But then he goes on and he says, for I have come down from heaven um, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. So who's doing the giving? The Father. And Jesus says, whoever the Father gives to me, I'm not gonna lose. But then he goes on and says, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who is everyone? Everyone who believes are the ones that the Father gives to the Son. So there's gonna be a whole bunch of everyone, right? There's gonna be a whole bunch of people who believe, but why did they believe in the first place according to Jesus? Because the Father gave them to Jesus. So did salvation start in the Father's mind or in your decision? In the Father's mind. But okay, Michael, that's not totally clear. Let's just, all right, let's be more clear. Go on. Jesus is like, you don't like that answer? Let me get Crystal. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What? I want to give you permission. This is going to start to violate some of your American sensibilities, okay? I just, it's okay. But is he clear? Answer? Yeah. Okay, you might say, not clear enough. Let's go. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Speaking, by the way, of salvation, I mean, this is in that context. This isn't just ripped out of context, right? You're like, eh, that's just one instance. Keep going. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear good fruit. This is a really funny conversation that I, I just think is ironic. If you were to go to most people and you were to say, did you choose God or did God choose you? Say, oh, I chose God, okay? Let me, let me ask you something. If Jesus sat down with you right now and he said, did I choose you or did you choose me? What would you say to him? But when we're not talking to Jesus, we say, I chose him, right? But if we're talking to Jesus, he's pretty clear. Michael, is there more? Well, let's keep going. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If Jesus sat down with you and looked you in the face and he said, did you choose me or did I choose you? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You choose or me choose? You would look at him and say, before I chose you, you chose me. And then Jesus would unravel and go behind the curtain and say, okay, before I chose you, the father before the foundations of the world plucked you out of all of humanity and he set his affection on you, and he gave you to me, and I will draw you to myself. So I get that this is not in the way many of you have understood salvation behind the scenes. But once we open up the Bible, it's like, oh, this is, this is kind of gut-wrenching. This is kind of, this is kind of hard. This is kind of uncomfortable. Why does this, actually, we'll, we'll go there. I want to share with you the text that after two years changed my mind. I wrestled and I wrestled and I wrestled. And I so badly wanted to put the Bible on trial. And God inverted it. And then I came across this text. I don't know how I missed it. I read the book of Acts, like, I don't know, a hundred times before this. And it just whoop, right over my head. And here's what it says. When 
When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now, if that's all that it said, we'd be fine. Here's what's happening. The apostles are preaching the gospel. The Gentiles are hearing it. They're believing it. They're saying, if you will, I choose to follow Jesus, right? They're making decisions. And on an experiential level, is that what's happening? Yes, totally. And so you would expect at this point, right, you could look at them and say, did you choose Jesus? And they would all say, yes, we chose Jesus and we love him. But here's what Luke does. Luke all of a sudden says, okay, that's true. It's objective. They did choose him, okay, on one level. But now what Luke does is he, he unveils the curtain. He says, I want to bring you in just a little one-liner behind the scenes to show you why they chose. It goes on. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What? I read that and I said, there's got to be another alternate um, interpretation. So I opened up all these commentaries that disagreed with this. I read them all and I'm like, wow, you guys are stretching. You are desperate to make God like neat, nice, easy, and tidy, and it's not working. And you know what appointed means? Appointed, like chosen. Like it's simple. Actually, it's not that crazily difficult. And so you step back and it's like, wow, they, they made a decision. Yes, it's totally true. But here's the question. Why did they make the decision? And the why goes far before they were even born into eternity past, into the mind of the Father who plucked them out and then at the right moment in history intervenes and says, this is the moment. This is the moment that I've chosen to allow you to hear the gospel and to give you faith and to open your eyes so that you could see. I want to share with you the why question. The why question, I think Paul get, gets this because the why question is, why did this happen? So Paul, is, is, he's, he's on the road to Damascus and he's going to go kill and persecute Christians. Now, did Paul choose Jesus? Actually, in Paul's mind, he didn't. Jesus blinds him with a light, kicks him off his whatever he's riding, lands on the ground, blinds him and says, why are you persecuting? Who are, who are you? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, right? And Jesus intervenes in his life and he saves him. And Paul's like, interesting, like, why did this happen? Apparently for Paul, he's like, all I know is I had no ambition to come after Jesus. Jesus came hard after me. And so this is the why question. I ask my son, or my son asks me all the time, Daddy, why? Why do you like peanut butter? Because I like the way it tastes. Why do you like the way it tastes? Because when I was younger, I had a positive experience that my mom gave me. I was like, oh, yeah, right, okay, why? Because my mom, like, wouldn't feed me fast, and I don't know, it was like the 80s when we ate white bread. I don't know, so why? Um, and we go back and back. Well, because that's the way, you know, God made my, my mom. Why, right? And you go back further and further and further. Do you know what the answer to every why question is at the end of the day? God. Always. Every time. So now X is like, Daddy, why are you like as tall as you are? God. Um, Daddy, where are we going? God. Like, <laughs> like, I already know where it's going, you know? God. It's simple. So I just now I ignore every question. He has God. It's, it's great. But Paul, I imagine he's sitting there and he's thinking like, why, why me, right? And he's like, well, Jesus pursued me, oh. But then he also knows about the Trinity, that the Father is ordaining and the Son uh, pursues. And he's like, wow, well, this must have come from the Father. This must have been before the foundation of the world because in Paul's mind, um, what's happening in history um, was, we'll say, um, allowed, ordained, or permitted before the foundations of the world. So in Paul's mind, he just logically plays this out and he says, interesting, yes, there's this moment where the gospel's preached and these people hear and they believe and they say, I follow Jesus and Luke and Paul and Jesus and Peter and all of the writers of scripture hold, pull back the curtain and they say, here's why, God. So you get to person A and person B. Why does person A trust in Jesus and person B doesn't? Are you smarter? The answer is no, please say no. Are you better? 
Are you more logical? Some of you don't have near the degrees in education of PhDs uh, and, and they reject Jesus and you trust in him. Well, what, is it, what about you is so special? At the end of the day, if you're gonna say you chose God first, here's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm smarter, more logical, or better than someone else. And the clear teaching of scripture is, no, 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 no. God has orchestrated salvation in such a way that no one can boast ever in any way, shape, or form. It is not permitted, and the only way it's not permitted is if you had nothing to do with it. And so Paul goes back, the why? Well, God. Now again, some of you, the questions and the implications, but what about this and what about that? I'm with you. Can I just tell you that? I might sound like a cold-hearted preacher because I know what the Bible, I believe, says, and it's overwhelming and it's there, but I am not ignorant of the difficult questions and the whys and the hows and what does that mean about your nature and your character. I'll bring you into one of my big concerns in this whole issue is, is uh, you get to the Garden of Eden, right? And you have this story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 where Adam and Eve are walking in the garden, everything's happy, and they're naked, and they're great. And, and then all of a sudden, Satan, the evil one, the deceiver of the universe, is in the garden, right? How did he get there? You ever think about that? Like, what's he doing there? And here's what's interesting. Did God put him there? I don't know. If God didn't want him there, would he have been there? No. If you, by chance, maybe let your kids go play in a garden and you knew that Lucifer himself was in the garden, would you pull him out? <laughs> right? Please say yes, because you're terrible if you don't. Okay? And God's all like, I'm going to go for a walk. Right? And then they have a little conversation and all of humanity is completely destroyed and sin affects the entire world and genocide and abortion and everything else that happens everywhere and death and murder and stealing and lying and adultery. And you're like, like, where were you? And here's what you have to say. God chose not to be there. I wrestle with that, right? I want to say, God, if you're so good, why didn't you stop this? And then over and over and over again, we get to these issues and you get to the why and whatnot. It's like, according to the purpose of my will. And I'm not, I'm not going to for one moment tell you that that's easy. For me, I struggle with this as a Western American from the moment I open up Genesis 1 all the way to the end. But here's the deal. I walk by faith, not by sight. And I am one finite little dude who is trying to understand the infinite, most complex, most beautiful God who is infinite in truth and righteousness, holiness, and wisdom. And I just at some point have to bend the knee under the authority of the word of God, which is under the authority of the living God who inspired it, and say, if I knew what you knew, I would do what you did every time. And although as an American, this violates my sensibilities, I know this, when I get to heaven and I see what you see and I feel what you feel, I'm gonna look at you and say this, you are a genius. Like, the, like of all the possible ways that you could have saved humanity, okay? There is nothing that brought you more glory than this. This is objectively the greatest method of saving people on the planet. You're awesome and here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna see this and we're gonna give him much glory and claim that he is the greatest genius that has ever lived because he is. So now we're gonna go on. I'm gonna fast forward to the rest of these these. Notes. Number two, I was personally chosen to be holy. Why did he choose me? Here's what he says. Even as he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. I want to give you an illustration I think that's hard, but will help us understand this. If you've ever known a heroin addict, in the middle of their 
addiction, they are fully consumed. They are enslaved. They can want to get out. It is more powerful than anything you can probably begin to understand. And so in the middle of this, they're sitting there and they are addicted and they are struggling. And there might be a part in the deepest recesses of their soul where they want out. But if you're in it, you can't get out. It's not like that. And so they are broken and they are living in a way that is destroying their life, their soul, their body, their relationships with people, with their family, with God. It is totally, totally destructive on every single level. And if it were your son or your daughter, you'd want to go in and you'd want to pluck them out of that. And you'd want to take them home and force them to detox. You'd want to take them home and do everything you could, whether it was against the law or not. (laughs) You'd want to take them home and you'd want to bring them and you'd want to protect them and you'd want to shelter them and you'd want to do everything you possibly could. Because I think what people don't realize is that when God plucked us out, he wasn't just making our life a little bit better. He was taking us out of sin, which is infinitely worse than heroin or deep drug addiction, which controls and destroys everything in our body and our soul and our relationships. It it removes our relationship with God completely. It destroys our life. And God saw this, and before the foundation of the world, knowing the destiny of all of humanity, he comes in and he plucks you. If you're a follower of Christ, he pulls you out of this. Now, here's the crazy thing, right? Uh, When he plucked you out, you weren't even a son or daughter. You were an enemy. And he plucks out an enemy and he sets his affection and he puts you in detox and he pours out his love on you and he says this, I'm gonna legally adopt you. You are my son and I will not let this have victory over you. And what I want you to understand is that sin is not just like something we struggle with. It is a vicious disease that ruins everything in our life. And Paul wants you to understand God in eternity past set you apart at the right time he plucked you out of of an addiction far worse than any drug addiction could possibly be and he has put you through detox. He has adopted you legally. You once were were his enemy. Now he says, you know what? You're a son or a daughter. You were an orphan heroin addict. Now you are a clean, loved, beloved son or daughter and what's mine is yours and I will fight for you and I will not let you go. I will finish what we have started here because you're mine. And the person who is in drugs, they can't do it. You look at somebody who is high on heroin and you tell them to stop, it's in their their blood, they cannot stop it. And Jesus plucks them out of this. And this is what you and I are like. And so we say, you know, the fact that he saved any of us is an absolute glorious miracle. Now, one of the questions you're gonna have to wrestle with is, why didn't he go in and pluck everybody out? And that'll be a discussion for another day. It's an eight-week sermon series that we're not gonna go into, but here's what Paul wants you to land. He plucked you. And had he not, you'd be sitting in your sin addiction, far from God, far from your loved ones, everything in your life not functioning the way God wants it to. And he pulls you out. And here's what it, why we look at the person who saves the person from addiction and brings them to cleanness is because now they're actually able to live the way they're wired to live. They're actually able to thrive and survive and to grow and to love and to be clear-headed and it's good. And that's what it's like with Jesus. He gets sin out of our life slowly because honestly, like when you take somebody out of drug addiction, do they stay an addict for a very long time, if not forever? And the answer is, yeah. Is the temptation and the desire lingering strong in them? And the answer is, yeah. But he makes them new and he gives them his name. And he cleans them. And then the drug addict messes up sometimes. And then maybe they, they screw up. And then God says, you know what? You're my son. You're my daughter. You're mine. I will finish what I started with 
you, except again, our problem is infinitely worse than any kind of drug. It is sin, which if you don't have a view of sin that necessitates God pouring out his wrath on people who sin, then your view of sin is not big enough. So God plucks us out and he says, I've chosen you to be holy. Number three, I've, I was personally chosen out of love. I love verse four and five. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There was no meanness of God. Like some of you are like, how could God do that? Here's what I want you to understand. Pure passion, affection, and love for you is what motivated him to pull you up out of your sin addiction. And then he makes you a son or daughter and promises to finish what he starts. All of this is done out of pure love for you. And then number four. I was personally chosen to display God's glory. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. I, this line bothers me. because I'm like, what's the purpose of your will? He's like, I'll tell you when you get to heaven. Thanks. But I love this. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, who's Jesus. And at the end of the day, here's what he says. I'm not gonna tell you all the ins and outs of my will and this and that. You need to trust me. It's called faith. Walk with me. Here's what's gonna happen. You'll get to the end and you will see why I did what I did and what I did and it will give me so much glory it will blow your mind. And you will go, you are a genius. Well, then he keeps going on and he says this. He's bringing it up. You're predestined. Having been predestined, why? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Is all things mean everything? Yes. Subcategory of all things is who gets saved. So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. That somehow when God plucks you out of your sin addiction and he calls you a son and he detoxes you and he changes you and transforms you, he puts you almost like on a pedestal where humanity sees what only Jesus Christ can do inside of a person. And it gives him much, 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 much glory because only God could do that. Now, there's some objections. I don't have time to go through them all. We're gonna do podcasts, submit your questions. Here are the first three that we will answer. Why can't I just choose for myself? Some of you are thinking that. It's a great question. I wanna go after that, not now. We're like eight hours into this sermon. A God of love would never do that. We're gonna go after that. I wanna honor the question. It was my question. It is many of your question. If it wasn't your question, let me give you the question. Go there, go deep, wrestle hard. Number three. The Bible teaches free will and predestination. We're gonna go there, okay? We're gonna wrestle through that, not now. So submit your questions, right? And we'll go after them. These will be the first three that we go after in our podcast. I wanna close, because you might be saying, Michael, why? why are you talking about this? Two reasons. Number one, you, if you've trusted in Jesus, were handpicked by God for a purpose. You are not arbitrary. You are not random. Your life is not an accident. You might be in the deepest mire of your sin and you might be a follower of Jesus. You might be struggling in ways that you never possibly imagined. And what this doctrine declares to us is that your salvation did not begin with you and it does not end with you and that he will 
objectively finish what he started in you. And yes, as long as you're alive, will you wrestle with your sin addiction? Answer, yes. But your sin will never cause God to stop loving you because his love for you was not based in your decision, but in his decision. And now your sin, which didn't earn his love, will not cause you to lose his love. You are in Christ, totally safe, secure, with a purpose. And God made you and plucked you out, not because he was bored, because he wanted to get much glory in your individual life. Number two, this doctrine is the reason you can say the following, I cannot lose my salvation. You cannot, I want you to hear me, you cannot teach this clear doctrine of eternal security without predestination from this perspective. You can't. This is weird to me, but we say, we want the free will to choose Jesus, but once we choose him, I wanna give up my free will and I don't wanna lose it, right? <laughs> Does that make sense? You either have the free will to choose him and therefore the free will to not choose him. It either begins with you and ends with you or it begins with Jesus and ends with Jesus. And we know that the Bible clearly overwhelmingly teaches that you're secure if you're in Jesus Christ. And I've got good news for you. The same thing that permits you to not lose your salvation is the same reason that you came to salvation in the first place. You got it because God set his affection and his love on you. And at the right time, he orchestrated events so that the gospel was proclaimed to you. And he gave you faith to believe. And on the surface, yes, you made decisions. But when you unravel and you look behind the scenes, God was massively at work. Whenever I proclaim the gospel to anybody publicly, privately, here's what I know. There's what I'm doing and there's what God is doing. Mine is simple. His is infinitely hard. But my gospel proclamation is nothing, nothing unless Jesus does the saving. So as we close, <clears throat> I want to invite you again. I mean this struggle with this. I'm not asking you to love everything we said here. I'm asking you to open your mind and submit it to the word of God. Open your Bibles and every question that you have, let's go back to the word of God and say, what does it say? Because as Western Americans, you need to get this. Your culture tells you this is unacceptable. And now we need to put our culture on trial under the authority of the word of God. And that's my desire. And I am happy to change any of my views if you can open up scripture and we can clearly show that. Amen? Sound good? So have at it at your community groups. Russell, um, don't punch anyone in the face. Don't call anyone names. I've seen it all. I have not punched anyone in the face. I did, confession, I did hit my brother in the head while he was driving a long time ago when we debated this. I was 23 years old and I had to repent of that because that was wrong. So <clears throat> just to show you the emotions, right? But be kind and I want to invite you into your group. Ask all the questions you have. And don't feel like you need to conclude today. But whatever it is, here's what God wants for you. He wants you to say, wow. He wants to blow your mind because this is the first blessing he's given you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we get ready to celebrate communion, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is just central to our salvation. There is no salvation apart from this. And so I wanna just say thank you. I wanna say thank you that even though we were dead in our sin, even though we were infected with a virus far worse and more devastating than any kind of drug addiction, you saved us. I wanna thank you for the powerful gospel, which is really a powerful God who's chosen to save and people hear the gospel. It blows my mind. God, I know that I and so many here 
really just struggle to wrap our brains around this issue. And so God, I wanna pray that you would just gently but clearly from your word guide us to conclusions on this matter. It seems like you and Paul didn't struggle with this. You just talked so easily about it as if it's no big deal. But God, it is a big deal to us. And so Lord, would you help us? Would you help us think biblically? Would you help us think clearly? And Lord, I pray that the end result of this is that we would be so blown away by what you have done for us in Jesus that we would worship you and give you glory. We love you and we worship you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.